So our sermon today is Yeshua, Messiah, Son of David, the Jewish heritage and essence of our Christian faith. And Yeshua means, and Messiah means, it means, it means anointed one or Mashiach, and Son of David means, Son of David, very good. We are on this. And when it comes to the Jewish heritage and, uh, of our, and essence of our Christian faith, I'm really talking about Genesis through Revelation as one continuous story of the one true living God and his covenant relationship with Israel on behalf of all the nations. And to my joy, I walk into the prayer room before service, and what does it say? My house shall be a house of prayer for, and here we are. So David Neff, the recently retired editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, stated that Marv Wilson the author of Our Father Abraham, made a compelling argument in his latest book published in August 2014 for renewing Christian faith by recovering our Jewish heritage. And he actually said, if only there were more like Marv. Well, there are, and that's why we're here today. So let's open in a short word of prayer. Avinu Malkenu, our father our King, we ask that you would breathe new life this hour into the words new life, into the congregation new life, that everyone here would not leave the same but walk in newness of life. And this we ask in the name of Yeshua, Messiah. Amen. So new life, what's in a name? Do you ever think about your name? We live around the corner, as Pastor Steve says, so we drive by your sign multiple times every day. And while I'm not much on church names, boy, did you pick the right one. <laughs> Why? Because new life is the heart of the good news. You say gospel, I say? More accurate, good news. The good news as it is found in the book of Isaiah. The good news as it's found in the writings of Paul. The good news as it's found in the four canonical gospels. And we clearly see it where? Romans 6, 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through immersion into death. Anybody been buried? Wow, what an overwhelming response. You're buried with him through immersion into his death so that as Messiah was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. What is this newness of life? Do you ever realize it's part of the promise new creation spoken of in the book of Isaiah? Isaiah 65, 17 through 18 and says speaks of a future creation of a new heaven and earth, a new Jerusalem of joy and a new joyous people. One of the main themes of Isaiah is the good news of the kingship of God and the new creation is directly related to that good news of the kingship of God. This is why John 3.3 states... Truly I say to you, unless a person is born anew, 
you cannot see the kingship of God. Did you ever realize that when you were born anew, you got a new seeing? You can see something that's invisible, and that is the kingship of God. So understand that our being born anew is directly related to being in the kingship of God. So do we truly realize that our being born anew is evidence of God's promised new creation in Isaiah? Do you have such a rich understanding of your connection to God's salvation history? And read Isaiah carefully and understand that Isaiah makes the point that when the kingship of God comes, when the messianic age is inaugurated, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the mute will talk, and the lame will walk. And what do you find of the dominating miracles in the Gospels? Those four. Seeing, hearing, speaking, walking. That's evidence that Isaiah's new creation, the kingship of God, has arrived. This is what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians 5.17 when he said, Therefore, if anyone is in Messiah, they are a new creation. Old things have passed away, new things have come. The creation, the new life of Isaiah has begun in King Messiah. Do we have a rich understanding of this that has absolute dominion over how we live every day? How profound is this? This profound. According to Colossians 1.13, God has rescued us from the sovereign rule of darkness and transferred us into the kingship of the son of his love. Are we those who have experienced a profound transfer from the sovereign rule of darkness into the sovereign domain of Jesus, son of David? Do you realize that I'm not just standing here in the New Life Sanctuary in Gehenna? but I'm actually here representing a person who's entered into the actual kingship of God and that I felt compelled to accept the invitation to usher us into further reality of entering into the kingship of God? Thanks for the amen. It's the mustard seed version of the kingship of God to be sure. It's in its small, invisible form. But you can never be part of the fullness of the kingship of God unless you enter it in its mustard seed, invisible form. And so, in Zechariah 4, it says, Who has despised the day of small things? So it's small, it's invisible, but it's nevertheless real to those born anew with the eyes to see it. So, new life, challenge number one. I have come that you might be challenged and that you might be challenged more abundantly. <laughs> have we been born anew? Then let us demonstrate to the world what it means to be a new creation in Messiah. 
Have we been rescued from the sovereign reign of darkness? Then let us demonstrate what it means to walk in the light. Have we been transferred into the kingship of the Son of God's love? Then let us demonstrate that all of our loyalties have been radically shifted to a new king, Messiah Yeshua. And let us demonstrate living out the values of that kingship in the nitty-gritty of our everyday lives on Monday through Saturday in the U.S. Empire. So now we have a key word, and oh my goodness, it's a big one, prolepsis. So let's all say it, prolepsis. Now what does prolepsis mean? Let's look at the Merriam-Webster unabridged dictionary definition, which is so clear. The representation or assumption of a future act or development as being presently existing or accomplished. Sermon's over, you're clear, right? Here's the Henry Louis Goulet unabridged dictionary definition. The present profound foretaste of the promised profounder full taste. That's understandable, isn't it? It's like going to a restaurant in the heavens, having the most amazing appetizer of your life, everyone texting OMG, and you have not yet had the meal. It's an already not full thing. People like to repeat the famous writer that said already not yet, but Yeshua said has arrived. Already not full. Let's immediate apply, immediately apply this to our Colossians 1.13 passage. If God has rescued us from the sovereign rule of darkness and transferred us into the kingship of the son of his love, then we must always seek to provide the world with the richest foretaste of the coming full taste of the kingship of God and Messiah now. So we enter the kingship of God, and then how do we pray? Look at the prayer pattern Messiah left for us. We speak just a piece of it. Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Our Father. Notice our. Not the me, myself, I, U.S. way of praying. No. Our Father. Why? God called a people. We're a people. Our Father, the one in the heavens. Oh, the kingship of God's in its fullness in the heavens. And so we pray there, and that connects us to earth. Earth and heaven is connected through our prayer. Our Father in the heavens, sanctified be your name. May it be unique as you are unique. Then what do you pray? Let your kingship come. Let your will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. And how is that prayed? Like this. Let your kingship come. Let your will be done. We're praying in a manner that represents those who have entered the kingship of God. We love the mustard seed form. We're spreading the good news of it everywhere. We want it to come in its fullness. So what are we praying for? For the floor of heaven to give way in the kingship of God to drop down to earth. Is that our prayer life? That must be our prayer life. And what about that doxology at the end? For yours is the kingship and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And in your Bibles, you probably read, it may not be there in the original text. Well, that's fine, but guess what? It was eventually there, 
Somebody put that there. Why? Because that prayer was adopted for liturgical use by the community of Messiah followers. And that probably comes straight out of 1 Chronicles 29, 11 through 13, or at least is inspired by it. Well, our message was Yeshua Messiah, Son of David, the Jewish heritage and essence of our Christian faith. We ought to at least define all the terms in our title. Yeshua. Matthew 1, 21, B through C. You shall call his name Yeshua, for he will rescue his people from their sins. It's the shortened form of Yehoshua, Yeshua. Likely at the time Jesus lived, it was Yeshu. English Joshua, and it means yod Hey vav Hey is salvation. That's the word for Yahweh. We don't say Yahweh because it's offensive to the Jewish people. The reason that all came to be is when yod Hey vav Hey's name was revealed to Israel, the surrounding nations began to see how powerful yod Hey vav Hey was, so they used the name in their magical incantations. And therefore, the Israelites said, we will no longer pronounce the, the Lord's name. And Jesus is derived from the Greek or the Latin, which is pronounced roughly the same, Iesus. What about Messiah? It's the English transliteration. You bring a word from one language to another, letter by letter, of the Hebrew Mashiach. And Christ is the English transliteration of the Greek Christos. The word Messiah or Christ means anointed one. If you go to 1 Samuel 16, you read the story of oil being poured over King David's head. This is how anointing took place. So understand Messiah as the anointed one and associate the anointed one with the king of Israel. When the king was officially anointed with oil, he was symbolically exalted to co-kingship with God. That is the king of Israel. And recently some scholars like N.T. Wright have called for a return to the use of the term Messiah so that no one thinks Christ was Jesus' last name. Like Betty Smith, Jesus Christ. My own father just asked me if Christ was Jesus' last name. Son of David, I urge you to read 1 Samuel 8, 1 through 9, 2, 15, 1 and 26, 16, 1 through 13, and especially 2 Samuel chapter 7. In these passages, the story is told of how God was to be the king of Israel. If you read the book of Daniel very carefully, you will find that the thinking in Daniel is of this kind. That when God separated all the nations of the earth, he put an angel in charge of every nation and reserved Israel for himself. So he was to be king, but they rejected him as king and asked for a human king. And God, because he's all gracious, accommodated that and made the hopes of Israel and therefore us as the nations rest in the Davidic kingship. So we look at 2 Samuel 7, and that shows us how the ultimate hope of Israel would be in the promised permanent Davidic king. 2 Samuel 7, 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be leader over my people 
Israel. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, which means you die, I will raise up your son after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingship. <coughs> he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingship forever. So notice in 2 Samuel 7, the promise is when it comes to the Davidic dynasty, that is where the permanent kingship will come from. And then it says in verse 14, I, God, will be to him, the Davidic king, a father, and he, the Davidic king, shall be to me a son. Do we all realize that's where the term son of God comes from? 2 Samuel 7. It has to do with God and the Davidic king, father and son, such that son of David equals son of God. And now we turn our attention to 1 Chronicles. And how many use Chronicles this week for devotions? Wait, I'm counting. Zero. Why is Chronicles so important? Because Chronicles, if truth be known, is the last book in the Jewish canon of Scripture, not Malachi. It ends with Chronicles. And what's the first book of the New Covenant Scriptures? Matthew. I want you to see the connection between Chronicles and Matthew that is in the Scriptures themselves, canonically speaking. The genealogy, that's what one through nine of Chronicles is, genealogy. And of course, we don't read that. Why? Too hard to pronounce, and we don't care. But guess what? All genealogies, all genealogies are answers to God's promise to Abraham that I will multiply your seed, and it'll be as many as the grains of sand on the sea. All genealogies are God's promises fulfilled. Let's stop skipping the genealogies. This genealogy starts with Adam, traces the path of God's covenant through Noah, Abraham, Israel, and then finally and cumulatively to David. Even though it mentions his son, Solomon, it stops at the Davidic dynasty. And in 2 Chronicles 13, 5, it says, Don't you know that the Lord God of Israel has given the kingship over Israel to David and his sons? forever so we're at the end of the jewish canon one continuous story from genesis to chronicles puts all the hope of israel and us the nations in the coming permanent davidic king and then we have 400 years and then all of a sudden we have matthew and what does Matthew say? What is Matthew 1.1? The book of the genealogy of Yeshua Messiah, the son of David. You'd almost think I got the title of the sermon from Matthew 1.1. Yes, I did. The son of Abraham. And why the son of David, the son of Abraham? Because the good news is to the Jew first and to the Greek, or to the Gentile. So let me just suggest that the perfect response to 1 Chronicles 1 through 9 is in Matthew 1 and Matthew's whole gospel. The hope for the permanent Davidic king 
and Chronicles finds its ultimate realization in Matthew's genealogy. And did you ever notice that the genealogy is arranged in three sets of 14? Did you ever wonder about that? And then if you read a commentary, it says there are more generations. He left some out. So what's this three by 14 arrangement? What if I told you that I agree with the scholarly consensus on this? The name David in Hebrew is made of three letters. Dalit, hey, Dalit. And it adds up to 14. Four plus six plus four. It adds up to 14. We believe the reason why Matthew constructed his genealogy in three sets of 14 is so that it would communicate to the people, remember that genealogy in Chronicles? You remember how it's all tied up in the permanent son of David? Well, guess what? Permanent son of David is here. David's at the bottom of set one and the top of set two according to 117. Because many say there's a name missing, not if you count David twice, like 117 forces you to do. And what about Joseph, Miriam's husband? He's called the son of David in 120. And what about 17 times the word David or son of God appears in the good news according to Matthew? Which brings us to Mark 1.1. The beginning of the good news of Yeshua Messiah the son of God, son of David, as it is written where? Oh, if you don't know Isaiah, you don't know Mark. If you don't know Isaiah, you don't know the good news. If you don't know Isaiah, you don't know the Gospels. We must get back to as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. It says we should discuss the genitives. And note that Mark is working from Isaiah. The genitives is a Greek thing that has to do with the ofs up there. Well, the first one's easy. The beginning of, of what? We need an answer. The good news. That's the first genitive. The good news of what or who? Yeshua, Messiah. Here's what we have to ask ourselves, though, in the Greek. Is it the good news about Yeshua, the Messiah, such that he himself is the good news? Or is it the good news that Yeshua, Messiah, himself rings someone said yes see you already understand the jewish heritage and essence of the faith it's if your answer is yes because it's a both and so thank you for your yes and we see yeshua being the one who brings good news in 14 and 15 here <coughs> now after john was arrested Yeshua came into Galilee preaching the good news of God. Here's Yeshua preaching the good news of God. What is that good news? The answer is in verse 15. Saying, preaching the good news of God. Saying, saying what? The time is fulfilled. The kingship of God is at hand. Repent or turn and trust in the good news. What good news? the good news of the kingship of God. And understand in the Greek here that the time is fulfilled and the kingship of God has drawn near or is at hand. They're both in the perfect tense, which means they have happened or arrived in a way they cannot unhappen or unarrive. And I use the word kingship instead of kingdom 
because it's not about a place. It's about a reigning activity that you are under, whether darkness or transferred into the kingship of the Davidic son. This all ties us to the good news of Isaiah. There's a scholar that calls Isaiah the fifth gospel. I hunted him down. I found him. I told him I love that. But guess what? I'm going with the first. It's the first gospel. It's the first good news. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the one who brings good news, who announces peace, who brings good news of good things, who announces salvation, who says to Zion, what? Your God reigns. What did Yeshua do when he went into Galilee? The kingship of God has drawn near. Repent and believe that good news. So Yeshua consummately fulfills Isaiah 52.7. Now, both Messiah's identity and the kingship of God are a mystery. So we turn now to Mark 8 and 9. And the passage here starts with Yeshua asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? Some say you are. Some say you are. Is it okay to participate here? <laughs> this side was going, ooh, ooh, a little while ago. You could yell, one of the prophets. Yes, but who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. Meaning Peter saw, you are the anointed one. You are the king. At least we think he saw that, yes? He saw it in part. What happens next? Yeshua is like, incredible revelation. Now let me tell you what happens next. Suffering, death, and resurrection. And Peter says, ooh No, no. What does Peter say? This will never happen to you. And so Yeshua says, not bad, Peter. Is that what he says? What's he call him? Satan, the Hebrew word for adversary. Get behind me, Satan. What? Why is that so important? <coughs> because if the death and resurrection of Yeshua do not take place, the kingship of God will not be inaugurated. Now, six days later, the six days is very important because Mark doesn't deal with exact time, but all of a sudden, six days. And notice, if you read the Sinai account, this is Exodus imagery. The cloud overshadowed the mountain for six days. And he says, six days later, and there's a cloud on the mountain. Six days later, they go up the mountain, and what happens? Transfiguration. Who appears? Elijah first, the text says, with Yeshua, with Moses. And then there's this glowing experience. Yes? Do you know what that is? A prolepsis of the resurrection took place on the mountain. A prolepsis of the resurrection took place on the mountain. So Peter thought, holy shimoli, the kingship's here. Let's build some tabernacles. How about three? One for Moses, 
as if they were the same. What did he miss? The kingship of God has not arrived yet. There needs to be a death and a resurrection. So everything disappears. And now they leave to go back down the mountain. And what has to take place? The death and resurrection. And he says to him, tell no one the things you've seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Why? Because it's not until then that that kingship will be inaugurated. What's the point? I have good news. Lots of it, huh? The way of the Lord is the way of suffering, death, and resurrection. That kingship is not inaugurated without all of Yeshua's birth, life, suffering, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, session. Session is sit down at the right hand of God. Now listen, in Messiah, we're born anew as a new creation. John 3, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It's a transformative gift. I heard that sung. In which we receive the Holy Spirit, which enables us to live the new covenant life of faithfulness. God only ever wanted a faithful covenant partner. It enables, to live, uh, it enables us to live out Deuteronomy 6, 5. And you shall love the Lord your God with the whole of your heart, with the whole of your being, with the whole of your capacities. And I think Philippians 1.29 was not just for the Philippians. I think it's for all of us. We were graciously granted not only to trust in him, but to suffer for his sake. We were co-crucified with him. Romans 6.6 6. We were co-buried with him, Romans 6, 4. We were co-resurrected with him to walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 4. We were co-ascended and co-reigned with him, seated in heavenly places, Ephesians 2, 6. Whoever's getting immersed today, make sure after you go under the water, you're not just thankful for the forgiveness of sins, but when you come out of the water, you're able to walk in new, newness of life under a new king, having been transferred out of the realm of darkness. All of this in a rich prolepsis. A foretaste of a full taste. Your homework assignment is to read Mark 4, 24 through 25. What a heavy assignment, two verses. Mark 4, 24 through 25 makes this point. The extent of your experience of the reality of the kingship of God and Messiah is directly proportional to the extent of how well you hear Listen and obey Messiah. Check me on this. Go read the passage. It's measured to you to the extent that you hear, listen, and obey. That brings us to challenge number two. And I only have three. Hot on the heels of rebuking Peter for not being mindful of the things of God. That was Yeshua's explanation to him of his rejection of 
death and resurrection, Yeshua declared, whoever desires to be a disciple of mine, let that one deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. The word could be translated disown there. But what if I told you it's the same Greek word in Peter's denial of Jesus and then challenged you with this? What would we be like as a community of Messiah followers if we denied ourselves to the extent that Peter denied Jesus? If Christian refers to our religion and we have simply added a dash of Jesus to our U.S. way of living, then let me suggest that we have failed to enter the kingship of God. And I urge you to enter it now. What's at stake? God's 21st century history. Do you realize church history is still being written? What will the book say about us? The whole good news is at stake. The whole good news has two main components based on two main functions of Yeshua Messiah. On one hand, he is the suffering servant Messiah who dies for our sins. Can you imagine that? And now the sins are forgiven. For what purpose? To go live our lives and just remember that? No. To enter the kingship of God under King Messiah, Son of David. And now go live out the values of the kingship of God in 21st century history, which is where God saw fit to put us. If that's what is, what's coming? Revelation 12, 10. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingship of our God and the authority of his Messiah have come in its fullness. For the accuser of the brothers and sisters has been thrown down. Looking forward to that day? Who accuses them day and night before our God. There will no longer be any curse and the what? Throne. Who sits on a throne? King. Understand how important this theme is. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his slaves will serve him. How can we have a throne of God and the Lamb and a singular pronoun, him? Isn't that a mystery? And are you his slaves? If you notice, it's slave language. And what's the it in this passage? The it is in 21.2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. It has to be emphasized because it's a major corrective that our ultimate future hope is not heaven. Don't get me wrong. If the roof collapses and we all die right now, we'll all be in heaven and I will see speaking. Son of David will be in charge. But if we remain, our ultimate hope is not to stay there. Our ultimate hope is to be where? In the new Jerusalem on the new earth where there's nothing but justice and no memory of all what is on this earth now that is not according to the kingship of God. Do you long for that day?
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among humanity. He will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. We're going to offer a kingship of God course here, kingship of God and Messiah course here. And in that, we will find that the chief theme of Scripture is I will be your God and you will be my people. So understand this as covenant love kingship. And understand in history, no master ever died for their slaves except this one. Your third and final challenge. I've put Philippians 127a together with 320 through 21 with 215, and I charge you with this. Only live out your earthly citizenship in the United States in a manner worthy of the good news of Messiah. Because ultimately, our citizenship is not in the U.S., but in the heavens. I'm on the earth, but my citizenship is in the heavens. I'm living out a heavenly citizenship down here while I wait for the fullness of it to drop. And I'm praying it down daily. From also, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Yeshua Messiah, who will transform the body of our humble state. Any of you over 60 in need of a new body? You young people are lucky. I'm missing body parts. That's not a joke. <laughs> Who will transform our bodies into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So that y'all, as a community, will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Now that was the Philippians. We don't have that problem, right? Because we live in a wonderful and godly generation, yes? Thank you for understanding my satire. Crooked, how about crookedest, perversest generation? Among whom you appear as stars in the universe. It's dark out there. Understand, when you leave here today, you're the stars in the universe that are shining forth the kingship of God to people that need to enter it. This is where in every presentation, when I stop, people say, hey, 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 where's the list? Where's the media shout outline? Where's the seven habits of effective shiners? Where's the seven habits of highly effective kingship of God livers? Where's the seven steps? What if there's seven million? What if you got to get it through the Spirit? What if you got to get it through wisdom? What if you got to get it through discipleship groups right here? And what if you have to get it from the king himself? Then don't let me rob you with a slide. I want to close with a complicated idea, but I think you'll get the point. The I... In Romans 7, 7 through 25, people always arguing, is that Paul before Messiah? Is that Paul after Messiah? We would argue, is that Paul at all? It's a case of prosopopoeia or ethopopoeia. Email me, I'll spell it for you. Speech in character. 
in which it's an invented literary slave. It's all slave language in 6, 7, 8 of Romans. Paul is comparing a comedic automaton slave in the Roman culture who only carries out instructions when they're given and fumbles at that to the ideal Roman slave who so loves and knows the master inside out that he can carry out instructions without ever being told. That's exactly what it means when Paul says, I am a slave of Messiah, or that we are slaves of God. He means we're in the new covenant. Sins have been forgiven. We have the Holy Spirit. We've entered the kingship of God. My new master, King Messiah. And now it's on my heart. I live it out from what's on my heart through the power of the Spirit. Amen? If you want more of this intensity, we will provide it on Sundays, April 12th, 19 and 26 from 6 to 9 p.m. for just $50, revealing the kingship of God. We'll do a sweeping survey of the kingship of God from Genesis 1-1 through Genesis through Revelation 22. Genesis 1-1 through Revelation 22. How about we close in a word of prayer? So Avinu Malkenu, our Father, our King, we are responsible before you today. We ask that you would grant us eyes to see, ears to hear, a more robust entrance into the kingship of God and Messiah. We thank you indeed for the fact that you, Yeshua, are the suffering servant who died for our sins. We thank you that sin is out of the way. Now we pray for freedom to live under your kingship, having been transferred out of the domain of darkness. Grant us the richest prolepsis, even as we respond to you more robustly every day. Grant that we would shine as luminaries in our dark age. Grant that you would use us mightily in your 21st century history. And this we ask in the name of Yeshua, Messiah. Amen.